Hello, you are listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade policy. I'm Samaya Keynes, the US Economics and Trade Editor for The Economist. And I'm Chad Bown, a senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics. This week, we're going to talk about fear. And we have a special guest, Bob Woodward. Many people will know Bob from his legendary investigative journalist work with Carl Bernstein. They did this in the early 1970s at the Washington Post. They were the ones that broke the Watergate scandal that ultimately brought down the American president, Richard Nixon. Today, we are going to discuss Bob's new book, Fear, Trump in the White House. Thank you very much for being here with us. Thank thank you. So could you tell us the time period that your book covers and and a bit about the process of writing the book? How is the sausage made? Uh, The idea is there essentially three ways Trump has been covered. The things he says that are untrue. My newspaper, The Washington Post, now I think has 4,000 of them. Uh, The second is the Mueller inquiry into Russian meddling and whether there's some sort of collusion or cooperation with Trump or Trump people. And the third is what Trump does as president, and I think that's the most important. So I focused on all the foreign policy issues, all the economic issues, trade, taxes, and tried to dip into all of them because I think in the end, what's important to people out there is what he does as president. What is it that motivates this particular president and his trade policy then? You have to try to, and it took me some time to understand how Trump looks at the economy, uh, the global economy, the national economy. And as you know, he is obsessed with trade deficits. He thinks that trade deficits, and even the other night at a rally in Pennsylvania or in West Virginia, he still talks as if the trade deficits collectively half a trillion dollars, 500 billion, that we lose that money that somebody's taking it from us. Not being an economist, I talk to a good number of economists and they all agree, I think it's 99.9% of the economists say that really is not a bad thing. When somebody in the United States buys something from South Korea or China in the global marketplace, It generally is because it's better quality or it's cheaper. And so it means American consumers have more money to buy other things or to save. Trump cannot get this out of his head. And I I think it's the driver for him. And it's almost like he thinks two and two is five. And it is a fatal flaw in the policy that is driving him. And I don't know how... He fixes it, or the country fixes it, or Congress fixes it. Now, you're professional economists. Speak up. Do trade deficits with individual countries really matter? Are they a bad thing? Where some economists might disagree is they might say that the overall trade deficit that the U.S. has is symptomatic of some kind of underlying problem. I think 99.9% of economists would say that trying to reduce a bilateral deficit in one with one country is, is not going to be that productive because it's going to pop up somewhere else. So I think the bilateral deficits piece is, is much clearer than the overall trade deficits piece, which is basically a kind of macroeconomic debate. But this is uh, the owner of the Washington Post, Jeff Bezos, the Amazon CEO, always makes the point, who's the customer? And for 
Americans as customers, the policy of the federal government is supposed to have their interest at stake at the heart of what they are doing. And as best I can tell, Trump has got this idea in his head. People, the economists in the White House administration, ask him about it. And where did you get these ideas? And he said, I've had them for 30 years. And essentially, if you disagree with me, you are wrong. I've tried to have scenes in the book where economists or, or experts are going through with Trump about this, and he doesn't get it. And the difficulty is presidents have to grow. I think in the end they get measured by how much they change and grow and learn. You've got to be on a learning curve, even as president. And this is one of the stumbling blocks that could really wind up hurting the customers in this country in a serious way. Could you list some of the most important characters on trade who are driving the trade policy agenda? Because often people just focus on the president, whereas actually there are lots of other important people. Yes, Peter Navarro, who's the trade policy person in, in the White House, and Wilbur Ross, the Commerce Secretary, they agree with Trump on this. And they may be the only ones who have some connection to the economy, and they are just as sure as he is that the trade deficits are a giant problem. I want to ask you about how the role of defense played into trade policy, because in your book, it seems like, you know, sometimes the the actions came from people who were worried about America's military alliances and undermining those through his trade policy. Well, this is the other pillar of Trump's view of the world, which is singular, and that is he feels that these alliances like NATO or military alliance with South Korea, that somehow they are ripping us off, they are cheating us, and because we're paying a large part of the bill. And Secretary of Defense Mattis and the generals tried to say to him, look, these are the best dollars you can spend. They are a bargain. They are not for the security of Europe or South Korea. They are for our security. At one of these meetings, Secretary of State Tillerson last summer when he was in office tells him this has kept the peace for 70 years. These trade agreements, these military alliances, regional security agreements, and the top secret intelligence partnerships. They're all wedded together. And Trump just does not agree. And in writing the book, I tried to convey the astonishment that people felt about this. In the opening scene of the book, there's this moment where essentially there's a there's a withdrawal letter from the the chorus, the, the the trade deal with South Korea. And and one of the arguments against the president withdrawing from that trade deal was the military implications of essentially severing that economic relationship. And there are more than military implications. There are vital national security implications because the military trade and top secret intelligence partnerships converge together, and there is a special access program, which I cannot write about because it's, it provides a degree of security to this country, which would astonish people. Sometimes the CIA and the intelligence people do things right, and this is something they're doing right, and it would allow 
the United States to detect a North Korean missile launch within seven seconds, compared to, say, 15 minutes if they had to rely on systems in Alaska. This is a vital difference. And so Gary Cohen takes it off the president's desk the in the Oval Office, the withdrawal letter, uh, knowing that he, because it's not if it's not before the president, it won't be on his mind. And he tells an associate, I'm doing this to save the country. I want to ask again about Robert Lighthizer, because certainly in the stuff that, that I've been seeing, he seems fairly important. So on the on the NAFTA negotiations, for example, he's been the lead negotiator. Um, he was the one in, in your book who proposed the Section 301 investigation into Chinese trade practices. Which was a great idea because you were going to organize the world. We weren't going to go it alone against China, but you had Europe, you would have Canada, Mexico, you really had everyone potentially on board, and they laid out that strategy, and President Trump kicked it aside because he wanted a tariff policy. He thinks that tariffs are the way to go, and of course, in the global world order we have, it's there. You can't burn the house down if you have to live in it. So in the chronology, what happens is the steel and aluminium investigations start. Then Lighthizer gets confirmed as as USTR. Then later, Gary Cohn and and Lighthizer go to the president and they say, look, we're going to start this grand strategy and, and, and do this Section 301 against China. But wait, don't do the steel tariffs until we've done this thing on China. And then, essentially, Wilbur Ross and Peter Navarro organize a meeting with the steel executives and the, the plan goes wrong. And the president announces the steel and aluminum tariffs before the... Before the grand and kind of globalist investigation and joint action. But there's more that happens here. And this is what is the shocker that uh, Navarro and Wilbur Ross get the president to call in steel executives And Gary Cohn gets wind of this and checks with the chief of staff, General Kelly, and says they're having this meeting tomorrow on steel tariffs and the executives from major steel companies are coming. And Kelly says, oh, no, no, that's not right. Well, it happens. And it is in Cohen's mind, in the mind of uh, it's a kind of subterfuge to get these steel tariffs rolling. And this is the issue over which Cohen resigns. Briefly on the on the on the China announcement, because I want to go back to this point of process, which I think is really important. But on the China thing, there was there was something that I didn't realize, which is you talk about when Trump does end up announcing the Section Three Hundred One investigation, and he doesn't want to mention China. Yes, exactly. It's hilarious, and they keep having. And he said, "Well, I don't want to mention China." Well, of course, it's all directed at China. That's like issuing an indictment and then not saying who's charged. And so he finally, I think, he puts it at the end of his statement, belatedly and with not a lot of emphasis and passion. And this is because Trump has formed a friendship with President Xi of China, and very much feels that this personal diplomacy and relationship is important, but he wants the tariffs, but he also wants to have the relationship with Xi. And so you see him balancing those two interests. I think looking into the future, you know, 
whether that relationship influences what ends up happening with the China tariffs is, is one of the most important and interesting questions. I agree. So there are two ways that people within the White House have tried to stop Trump from doing what he wants to do on, on tariffs. One of them is essentially hit him with economic arguments, and we're going to get to those. But the other one is just to make the process of doing what he wants to do more difficult. And so you've already mentioned that Gary Cohn just took away the letter uh, from his desk. Could you talk about some of the other ways in which essentially officials tried to jam the processes? Well, uh, jam is part of it. For instance, on the steel tariffs, there's a meeting in the Oval Office and in uh, the law, it says the Commerce Secretary has to consult with the Defense Secretary. And there's a back and forth about Mattis saying, well, no one consulted with me. And Wilbur Ross said, oh, I talked to some assistant Secretary of Defense. And Mattis said, yeah, but that's not me. And the law says the Secretary of Defense. And of course, Trump is just going crazy about this. You know, you guys work it out. Stop. You know, this is process, which, of course, he doesn't like. And I I thought it was revealing to see Mattis just drawing a line, saying because he sent a memo saying, you know, steel tariffs, that's not something we need. That's making it very clear. And here, I think they're all gathered around the Resolute desk and it's very much, uh, Wilbur, don't, don't worry, everything's fine, Mr. President. Mattis, no, it's not. He hasn't consulted with me. And then this delays the decision for weeks, at least. President Trump clearly wants to impose tariffs, is threatening to withdraw from these trade agreements. But he's clearly receiving some counterarguments that you mention in the book that are trying to push back against this. So can we walk through some of those? Yes, and the arguments of Gary Cohen is the strongest voice on this, comes from Goldman Sachs. And in Goldman Sachs, data drives. You go to a meeting at Goldman Sachs and you want to have the thickest packet of research. You want to have all the arguments. And so he would take this approach. And at one point, uh, Trump said, well, Bush imposed steel tariffs, which he did. And Trump was quite happy that there was a precedent here. And then Gary Cohen said, yeah, that's great. It created 6,000 jobs, which, of course, uh, is not that significant. I think there is a scene in the book which captures some of the rigidity on the part of Trump. And that is his meeting, I think, in the Oval Office and Trump says, well, the World Trade Organization is the worst organization ever created. And Trump goes on and said, "Uh, we lose more cases than anything. And Cohen, the former president of Goldman Sachs, the one who knew you got to go to the meeting with the most data, says, no, uh, we've won 85.7% of the cases. (laughs) Not just 85, but 85.7%. Trump says uh, a profanity, and then he says, this is wrong. Cohen says, this is not wrong. This is data from the U.S. trade representative. Call Lighthizer. Trump, I'm not calling him. I mean, he just closes his mind down on the facts, but not just the facts. It's not about 85.7. It's about, is this the worst organization ever created? Well, it's been 
definitely beneficial in terms of facilitating trade and the disputes that have happened there. We've won just as many as we've lost. So I think it's fair to say that 85.7%. President Trump has mischaracterized the, the U.S. record there. How about the story of the map. And so back in April of 2017, right leading up to the 100th day, there was this scene where President Trump was about to withdraw or threatening to withdraw from NAFTA. What happened there? And that's where the Agriculture Secretary, Sonny Perdue, goes in to the Oval Office and has a map and shows that if you do this, the states that are going to be hurt the most are Trump states. And that the political price that would be paid would be astronomical. At this point, Trump pulls back when alerted to the political damage that would come from such an action. So it may not necessarily be economics that is driving his calculus, but certainly the politics of some of these things. So we've talked about President Trump's focus on trade deficits But he also seems to be narrowly interested in the part of the economy of the United States, which is manufacturing to the expense of the services sector. So can you talk a little bit about that in the scene where Gary Cohen is trying to explain to him the broader picture of the U.S. This is the, the question of what's the American economy. And the American economy is essentially now a services economy. Trump has this old world view of, you know, people love working in steel mills, they love working the assembly line and so forth, and and Cohen comes in and says, but that's not the world you are president of in this country. It's very different, tries to give some examples, and Trump has it in his head. And finally, Cohen argues to him, say, look, people do not want to stand in a sweatshop all day They want to work in an office with air conditioning where they can sit down. And it's trying to make practical arguments to the president, and the president has closed his mind on some of these things. And that's, I I think, one of the themes in all of this is he does not know what his own best interest is, and he makes decisions based on misinformation, provable misinformation, One final question. How does the role of trade policy in this administration compare to its role in the past, thinking about past presidencies? Well, there has been a consensus in uh, Republican and Democratic uh, administrations that trade is good. It's good for Americans, good for the consumer. It stabilizes the global relationships. Uh, There is a line, which I'm sure you've heard, no two countries who have McDonald's have gone to war with each other. And there is in the book in Trump's handwriting where he's preparing a speech where he says, just writes out, trade is bad. And he never says that in a speech, but it reflects this kind of nationalism, isolationism that the United States can work in the world on trade issues all by itself. And I think people need to understand, and this is obvious, but Trump is a disruptor. People will say, well, but it's not normal. Well, anyone who thought if he was elected, he was going to be normal, wasn't listening or watching. It's okay to not be normal. Lots of presidents have 
done abnormal things that actually have benefited the country in a great way. So it's not the normality. It is the, if you're setting up a new world order for trade or the global economy, you have the framework of the past, these trade agreements, these military alliances, and you can't just come in and say, well, we're going to do it the new way all by itself. You have to take some of the old. And Trump has got these ideas fixed in his head. Now, he he would argue, in fairness to him, well, it's working. He says his new trade agreement with Canada and Mexico is much better than the old NAFTA. I've talked to just some. I mean, you people know much more about this, but actually it's not better it's worse. And maybe uh, someone was saying that under the new agreement, maybe the economy will grow one-tenth of one percent more. Others say actually there are more restrictions, trade restrictions in this agreement. So it's what, 1,800 pages long? Good luck. I'm sure you two are the only ones who will read it through. That's how we've spent our week. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, I plan not to read it. Thank you so much for, for joining yeah, us. Well, thank you, because it is it is a treat to talk to economists and people who understand that these issues are not abstractions. Will there be another follow-on book on the what happens with all of these tariffs? Oh, well, who knows? <laughs> that is all for Trade Talks. A huge thank you to Bob Woodward. Listeners should, of course, read his new book, Fear, to understand what has been going on in Donald Trump's White House. And listeners, be grateful we didn't ruin the ending of Bob's story by revealing what actually happens. Though my hint is that it rhymes with the word smariffs. A huge thank you to our fearless audio expert, Colin Warren. Follow us on Twitter. I'm at Samaya Keynes. And I'm at Chad Bown. And we're on at trade underscore underscore talks. That's not one but two underscores, at trade underscore underscore talks. Because when it comes to trade agreement withdrawal letters being stolen off a president's desk, two is better than one.